Thank you, David, for your, your introduction, and thank you for being with us tonight. It's always a privilege and a pleasure for me to be with you. As David had mentioned, I have been here on several occasions, and it's always a privilege uh, for us to be together. I always look forward to it and look forward to this opportunity tonight to be with David again, his fine family, and to be with you and to uh, study with you from, from God's Word. I thought since we're all on the, um, I guess this is the west side, I'm not sure, I'll speak to the West Side congregation tonight, and then uh, later, some other time, perhaps I'll get a chance to talk to the East Side congregation. But right now, we'll talk to the, uh, to the West Side congregation. I thought, and it was my suggestion, why don't I just speak from the floor if it's okay, and they said, sure, that'd be fine. So I'm all wired up, and I'm here right uh, ready to go, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity that you gave me. The uh, subject is a very interesting subject that uh, you have proposed tonight. And first of all, I want to commend you for your desire to want to know what does the Bible say. A lot of times somebody will bring up a subject to me, and, and that's always my uh, favorite statement. Yes, but what does the Bible say? And you've asked that tonight. You've asked what does the Bible say about strong worship as opposed to entertainment. And you've really asked a very important question. And it is a very vital, very appropriate uh, point to consider tonight. And what more important point could we have than this matter of our worship, worshiping God? And so I want to tell you, and I often do this at Broadway in Tyler, I tell them what I'm going to tell them, and then I tell them, and then I tell them I've told them. And you probably heard that before, but that's pretty much the way I do it. I want to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I want to talk about entertainment-type worship tonight. I will not be able to spend a lot of time on that particular matter, but we will talk a little bit about that so that we'll be on the same page as to what we mean by entertainment-type worship or entertainment. And then I want to talk about biblical worship, what the Bible has to say about the matter. And then in the third respect, I, I want to talk about uh, acts of worship. And I have to be brief, and if I don't spend enough time on a particular point here and there, you'll understand, because we have only as much time as the clock will allow. And so we'll have to be precise and concise in everything that we say and try to make the most of it as we possibly can. And I will try to speak in a little less formal way since I'm here on the floor, and I hope that we'll be able to communicate all the better because of it. Well, that's what we plan to do tonight, and we've got our work cut out for us because there's a lot of discussion that needs to be given with regard to this matter of worship, uh, the matter of entertainment, and then, of course, the matter of biblical worship. There is a lot of entertainment out there that has nothing to do with worship. I understand that. But there's a lot of entertainment in worship today. And it used to be that worship was very focused. It used to be that we were very focused on praising God and giving God the glory and focused in a very reverential way in studying God's Word and the presentation of God's Word in our worship. But things have changed considerably, so much so that sometimes we see new approaches 
and drastic changes with regard to worship, even among us as the churches of our Lord. It's certainly that way with regard to denominational churches that are out there. But even among us, we see a lot of drastic changes. And so let's talk a little bit about that tonight. The focus has changed from being such a God-centered worship, more of an us-centered worship, whereby the worship is concerned more with ourselves and what we want. So the appeal, in many respects, is if you want to go camping this weekend, that's okay. Or if you want to play golf, that's okay. Or if you want to visit the family, that's okay, because we can devise a quick worship service for you. And we can come up with a quick worship service that you can come and do something religious and then go on your way for the weekend and do whatever the weekend wants to do. Uh, David had mentioned about me going to California, and I was there 11 years, and um, that was always something that kind of uh, presented itself. Always on the weekend, folks wanted to go play and go to the ocean or go to the mountains or go to the desert or go to the, uh, the camping or whatever, and those are good things in and of themselves, but where does worship play in this particular matter? A lot of people want to accommodate that and thus... Worship now is minimized, worship is marginalized, so that people can go do and play and do what they want to. And old songs, are you tired of Amazing Grace? Are you tired of Rock of Ages? Well, we got a fix for that. we got a lot of new songs that we sing. And we sing these new songs, songs like Me and Jesus, We Got a Thing Going Together. And uh, songs like that are the rage and come and worship with us because we got all these new songs going. And um, if it's rhythm you like, then we can really add that to the worship service too, because we have a lot of hand clapping, foot stomping, swaying, and we really get with the gospel boogie where we go to church. We really fan the emotions there. I was talking to one of these fellows one time, and he said, uh, you know, you really come... You ought to go to church where I go to church because we really got a rocking church, man. We really got a rocking church. That's the approach today. Are you tired of preaching? Well, we can change all that. We don't have preaching at uh, worship service at our church, as they say. We have sharing sessions. The sharing, sharing session talks about personal experiences. And you'll come into a group, and rather than hear the preaching of the Word of God, there's the personal experiences that are shared frustrations are aired, opinions are given, and you can talk about your unsafe conditions on the job, and you can talk about uh, losing weight and weight control and how to take advantage of the current tax laws. And if you have problems with sin and redemption and salvation, don't worry about that, because where we go now in worship service, it's all about self-esteem, and we're more concerned about healing and we don't talk about things like sin. We just don't talk about that. What we do talk about are ways and means to improve your skills in conversation and trying to get along with people more. Bible class has changed too. Now we watch Andy Griffith for Bible class. You think that that doesn't happen, but it does. And while the class watches an episode of Andy Griffith, Griffith and I always enjoyed that at home, but not at Bible class, but that now supplements the curriculum of the Bible class. So Andy and Barney wrestle with a moral issue. Then after the uh, Andy Griffith show's over, 
and the class has finished seeing that, then the class discusses back and forth just exactly how one should or should not act or behave relative to that situation. And so you see how things have drastically changed. And as one of their preachers, their progressive type preachers, put it to me as I was talking to him, he said, Jim, you're going to have to get modern. If you don't get modern, then you're going to lose the people, and the people are not going to be interested in coming to worship service and Bible study anymore. Well, I want to present a fact to you and to all these good folks that I have been talking to and researching and studying. Here's a fact that you may have forgotten. There's a Bible out there. That Bible came from heaven. It didn't come from Hollywood. That Bible is an amazing book. In fact, it's the most amazing book in all the world. It is my favorite book. I've devoted my life to studying the Bible. David has too. You all have as well. We want to learn as much as we possibly can from the pages of the Bible because it has the mind of God. And isn't that amazing? We can read the mind of God in a language that we understand. And we carry it around in a single volume. So the question is, what does God really want? Does God want this kind of worship, which is more of entertainment style? Does God want this kind of worship that is marginalized so that we can go out and be entertained and do the fun things that we want to on the weekend? Or allow that entertainment atmosphere to permeate into our worship service so much so that one begins to wonder, are we really worshiping God or entertaining ourselves? What does the Bible say? And that's why you brought me here tonight. You wanted me to discuss what does the Bible say about. And so I devote my time to this discussion of what does the Bible say about worship as opposed to entertainment. Strong worship as opposed to entertainment. And that's what I'm going to consider with you. And I want to remember that Paul said in Colossians 2 and 23 that in that regard there is a thing called will worship. Will worship is human worship. Precepts and teaching that come from the mind of men rather than from the mind of God. But the spiritually minded person is going to be more concerned about what does God say. The spiritually minded person is going to be more concerned about his will for my life rather than what I want it to be. What does the Bible say for me? And there in turn, I want to apply myself to it. Let's talk a little bit about that now from this perspective. And that is the word worship as it comes to us, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a lot about that. But without going into the original word meanings, which are very helpful and insightful in understanding these particular matters, let's just notice that the word worship evolved into English from worth-ship. And the idea was that this person feels, this person has the idea that this one is worth-ship. He is worth devotion. He is worth dedication. He's worth conviction. And then the word worship comes into play, that we're actually saying, God is worthy of my worship. Now, let me say something as I begin on this particular phase of our discussion. God is still God, whether we worship him or not. It's not that God created the world and created people to worship him because he needed to. It is because out of his great love, he did that. It was not that he needed us to worship him, 
but he knows that we need to worship him. It is because of our need for him, not his need for us, that we come tonight to study the Word of God and we come to study the Bible and we worship him as the New Testament prescribes. And so he knows that it is a matter of my service and dedication to him is going to create the greatest amount of happiness in this life for me. It's going to create the greatest amount of satisfaction and goodwill and peace and harmony in my life when I devote myself to his service and worshiping him. As I begin to get into this discussion of worship and biblical worship, comparing it with entertainment and entertainment styles of worship, let me briefly talk about a couple of things that we need to clarify. There are a couple of false views out there that have come up that we need to be aware of. One false view of worship is the idea that all life is worship. And we have to be careful in this particular matter because there is some confusion on this with regard to the thinking of people. Worship has a great deal of emotion in it, and we're emotional people. Therefore, all life is worship. But when you analyze the word and you analyze the concept of worship, you see that worship is not all life being worshiped though my service to God is a means of my life, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Still, worship in the New Testament sense acquired a certain time and a certain place with certain activities taking place at those times and at that place. It was not something that we accidentally worshiped God, but it was something that we set our minds to do at a certain time and a certain place. For example, an Old Testament example will help us when Abraham goes to Mount Moriah there to worship. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5, he goes to that place to worship God. If all life were worship, he wouldn't have to go to a particular place. But God had directed him to go to that place, and there he will worship God. And the wise men, you'll remember them, they came from the east seeking to worship the Christ child. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2. They had to go to a certain place at a certain time to worship him. Therefore, this notion, which seems to become even more popular, the idea that all life is worship, needs serious consideration because it really doesn't reflect the concept of worship either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, whereby worship is described as a set of acts done at a certain place and a certain time and in a certain way. Here's another notion that we need to dispel as we continue into our discussion and we get deeper and deeper into this comparison between actual biblical worship and what the Bible says and entertainment, whether it be entertainment in worship or entertainment taking us away from worship, and that is the idea that worship is unregulated. You can do whatever you please in worship, they say. It doesn't matter because God has not told us any particular thing or any way in which we should worship. If you want to worship that way, that's fine. If you don't want to worship that way and worship some other way, that's fine also, they say. But that's a false notion. This notion's been around a long time that God has not regulated worship. For example, there is Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who led Israel to sin. In 1 Kings chapter 12, he initiated calf worship, Dan and Bethel. 
Instead of going down to Jerusalem as God had prescribed and taught, he said, I don't want to lose the people, I don't want to lose the crowd, so I'll keep them up here in the northern portion of the uh, kingdom. You'll remember that the kingdom had divided at the death of Solomon. Ten tribes went to the north after Jeroboam. Two tribes stayed in the south after Rehoboam. And there, those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained faithful to God for some time. They would become unfaithful as well. But the ten northern tribes left and followed this progressive idea of worship. He came up with his own priesthood. He came up with his own places of worship. He came up with his own system whereby they would worship God rather than worship God the way God had prescribed or regulated. And so 21 times in the pages of the Old Testament, it is said of Jeroboam that he had led Israel to sin. This idea that there is no regulation, there is no way, you can worship any way you want to, is a false notion. It is not found in the pages of the Bible. But let me restrict myself more to what the New Testament teaches. And with your Bible, I'm sure that you're familiar with some of these passages. But I'd like to turn to John chapter 4, and you might surmise that I would go to John 4, because that is really a classic text on this matter of worship. And I'm going to use verse 24 as the outline for the rest of my discussion with you tonight. Here Jesus had been baptized by John in the Jordan and had been tempted of the devil in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4. And he goes, the Bible talks about, down to Jerusalem and there observes the first Passover during his earthly ministry. John tells us of this. And then after leaving uh, Nicodemus and leaving the uh, city of Jerusalem, he preaches out in the uh, Judean area and works his way back north to Galilee. Most of the time, they would ford the Jordan and go on the east side of the Jordan River to go around the region called Samaria. They hated the Samaritans that much. And then they would ford the Jordan again on the northern end of Samaria into the foothills of Galilee and go on into the north. Jesus does not do that. He goes right up through the central portion of Palestine and comes and meets that woman at the well in John chapter 4, and this very historic statement really takes place, discussion about worship. And she's amazed that Jesus, being a Jew, actually speaks to her as a Samaritan, which shows the loving kindness and consideration that Jesus had toward all people. It didn't matter whether she was a Samaritan or not. Discussion is given as to her relationship, and so she perceives that Jesus is a prophet and comes to understand these particular matters and moves the discussion to the matter of worship, Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. Jesus, in a very kind way, corrects her misunderstanding and moves her back unto the subject at hand, which is a wonderful pattern for us in our discussions with people outside the body of Christ. He comes to about verse 23 in John chapter 4. But the hour is coming and now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Well, did you notice in verse 23 what he said? God is seeking something. What is God seeking? God is seeking true worshipers. John 4 and 23. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father 
in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship in spirit and truth. Verse 23 and 24. In that particular passage, we see God wants true worshipers. It is not a matter of simply worshiping God. It is a matter of worshiping God truly, properly, according to his divine will. Otherwise, our worship is not going to be acceptable in his sight. That's what I want to be. That's what you want to be. You want to be a true worshiper, a worshiper who worships God in the way that is pleasing to God in the acceptable way. Now, it's in verse 24 that I took the outline that I want to follow tonight. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I saw three points in John 4 and 24 that really helped me understand worship properly as I compare entertainment with strong worship. The thing that I see, first of all, is the object of worship, and he identifies the object as God. God is spirit. And then he talks about the attitude that I should have in worship. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit. And then also he identifies the action of our worship in truth. So I want to look at those three points with regard to our worship tonight as I understand what true worship is and how God is seeking true worshipers, the right object, the right attitude, and the right action. First of all, the right object. Man can worship, but he can worship the wrong object. That's what was happening in Acts chapter 17. Paul goes to Mars Hill. He says, I perceive that ye men of Athens are very superstitious people. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. And he launches into that wonderful discussion about God. Well, his point was, you're very religious, you're very superstitious people, and for fear that they may have missed one of the pagan gods, they erected an altar and simply called it to the unknown God. Let's don't offend any of these pagan gods, they thought. Let's make one just for whoever we happen to miss. And he's saying, that's the one, the one you missed. He's the one I want to talk about. He's the one that created heaven and earth, the right object. You can worship, but you can worship the wrong God. You can worship the wrong object. Man, if the archaeological spade has proven anything, has always been a worshipful being. You can go back as far into time as recorded history, as far into time as we can find evidence that there is. And man has always been very intelligent, very intelligent. He's done amazing things. And two, he is a worshipful being. Many times he's worshipped the wrong God. Many times he's worshipped the wrong thing. But a true worshiper is going to worship the right object. And the right object is God. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, there Jesus is tempted of the devil. And there were three temptations that the devil poses to him, and we're very grateful that um, Jesus resisted those temptations and refused to sin. And we're very thankful tonight that that surely is the case. But he comes down to that third temptation, and a statement is made there in Matthew chapter 4, and the verse is verse 10. In his response to Satan there, he says, now, Satan says to Jesus, now I'm going to give you all the nations of the earth, see all the glory of them, I'm going to give it all to you. 
Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. God's the only object worship should receive and should be given. He's the only one that truly is worthy of our worship. And Jesus made that clear. I'm not going to worship you. I'm going to worship God Almighty. Now, when the Bible uses the word God, we have to be careful. It's a great word. Whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, this wonderful word God composes God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three, the word deity describes the divine nature. King James used the word Godhead, of the Godhead. Those who are involved in this divine nature. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. He is a compound unity. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It is not three gods. That's polytheism. That's paganism. There is one God, one God who's Father of all, whose Son, Jesus, died for our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead by the power of the Father, and in turn, God the Holy Spirit, the revealer of God's divine truth. So David would say in Psalm 18 and 3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. We must worship the right object to be true worshipers. Now we're comparing, keep in mind, the entertainment style, as I mentioned a moment ago, along with what the Bible has to say. And the Bible is making very clear we've got to worship God Almighty. That means we do not worship angels. And there's always a temptation upon the part of people to worship angels, both ancient people and modern people. An angel is simply a created spiritual being. Man is a created physical being. And we as a created physical being are not to worship created spiritual beings that we read in the pages of the Bible. John was tempted to do that. In Revelation 22, verse 8 and 9, and the angel stopped him and told him, says, I am an angel, you worship God. And you may want to look at verse up, Revelation 22, 8 and 9, as it describes the matter of worshiping angels. We do not worship angels. That's the wrong object. We do not worship saints. We do not worship saints that have lived in the past or live in the present. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 4 and 5, there Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on this great mountain. Now, which mountain it was, we're not sure, but he's transfigured before them. And they saw the inward nature of Christ, and it was as bright as light. And it's a wonderful uh, passage of Scripture to study, Matthew chapter 17. And a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now, there's a lot that can be learned from that situation, but one thing is clear. Moses and Elijah are not on the same par with Christ. There was a time when men needed to listen to Moses, time when men needed to listen to Elijah, but now's the time for people to listen to Christ. And they, Moses and Elijah, are not on the same level, same category as Jesus Christ. We do not worship saints that have lived or died in the past. We do not worship saints who are alive today, though that's the case of many people. In Acts chapter 10 and 26, there Cornelius sends men to Joppa to secure a man named Simon whose surname is Peter. 
He will tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. When Peter comes to Cornelius and his household, Cornelius bows down to him, and Cornelius says, Stand up, rise up, I myself am also a man. That's Acts 10 and verse 26. Do not worship me. We must worship the right object. We do not worship people. We do not worship angels. We do not worship saints, living or dead. We must worship the right ones. We do not worship our ancestors. And there's a large portion of the world that does that. A large portion of the world will reverence and worship and pray to ancestors and their family members. Mysticism, ancestor worship is becoming more and more a part of our world today because of the um, advancements and communications that we have. Our world seems to be smaller and smaller and more of that is going to take place. We do not worship other gods. This would be idolatry. The point that I'm developing here is what do true worshipers worship? They worship God. They must worship the right object. And it's easy to fall into an error with regard to whom we should worship. My wife and I were out, Tyler, the other day. Uh, dinner, having dinner. Sometimes she likes to go out and eat dinner. And I say, yes, dear, where should we go? And she says, I don't know where do you want to go. And I said, I don't know where do you want to go. And finally, between negotiations, we come up with a place, agreeable. And so she says, well, let's try this new, I don't know how to pronounce the name, oriental type of name. Um, I can't uh, recall it, and I don't know how to say it. But it's some oriental type of restaurant. And so we go around. She says, how do you like it? I said, I don't like it. I said, how do you like yours? She says, I don't like, she says, I don't like it. I said, why don't we pay and get out of here? She says, okay. So I go over there to pay, and at the floor, there's this little pagan god at the cash register. And I'm looking down at this thing, and I thought, what in the world is all this about? And they got fruit, and they got vegetables laying down there on the floor to this pagan god. And I think, that thing's eating better than I did tonight. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I paid, and uh, Carol and I got out of there. And uh, I'm trying to be charitable with regard to my description of the, whatever that was. <laughs> the point I'm making is, idolatry is all over the world. The wrong objects. People worship the wrong objects. True worshipers worship God. The right object. John 4 and 24. But I must press on. Because I said there was a second point that it was making there with regard to true worshipers. True worshipers have the right attitude and the right spirit. Now, I've worked with that and struggled with the construction of this particular sentence and exactly how it comes up. But I think Linsky puts it best. Uh, the whole soul is thrown into the worship. When he references the matter of spirit... I really think, though we don't have time to develop it, God is spirit, and he is beyond limitation. There are no limitations with God. He's not bound by any kind of building. He's not bound by any kind of time. And that kind of God must be worshipped in that kind of way. God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit. But to help us understand, I think it's best for us to look at it from the standpoint of his reference to my sincerity and the disposition of my heart in worship service. 
That's much of what he's getting at, and these lexicographers and grammarians are emphasizing that with regard to the word spirit in John 4 and 24. Now, again, I've wrestled with that. Exactly what is he referencing there in that matter of spirit? But I think that's the best way to understand it. You'll remember Joshua in Joshua 24 in the Old Testament. He said that, uh, Now therefore fear God and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And that's the idea that Jesus is getting at with the Samaritan woman in John 4.24. Our sincerity and truth must be an important part of our worship service. What good does it do us if we just go through the motions? Now, there's always a tendency there, and we must resist it because we come and worship and come and worship and come and worship. We go through this and we go through this, and we say, well, you know, we've always done this this way. Now my mind's wandering around and my mind is thinking over here or thinking over there. We must resist this. Isaiah chapter 1 was a great chapter on that very point where Isaiah is scolding in a bold way the Old Testament people of Judah, southern Israel, because of the meaninglessness of their worship. They were going through the motions, but it didn't mean anything. Their attitude was all wrong. It must be a matter of sincerity, and it must be a matter of truth. Let me illustrate that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this important matter of worship cannot be ignored. And he discusses the matter of the nature of the Lord's Supper, but then he is very strong on this matter of um, how our hearts ought to be focused on the Lord's Supper. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty discerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone, verse 29, who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Some look at that word body there meaning the church, but I don't think he means the church there when he refers to the body. I think contextually we'd have to say he's still talking about the body of the Lord. But the focus of verse 29 is discerning. He's saying, now, make sure that your focus is on that bread and that fruit of the vine, discerning the body of the Lord. For when you don't, if you look at it in a frivolous way, in a ho-hum way, in a way in which, oh, you know, here it is again, you know, soon this will be all over and I can go home, then there's a matter of guilt and there's a matter of judgment. <coughs> and we need to be very careful here for anyone. I mean, 1 Corinthians 11, and you can read this verse in verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I think what he's saying there is if your heart's not in it, and if your mind is not focused on it, then you're headed down the wrong way. And the path that you're headed down is the pathway toward apostasy. Because you're taking the Lord's Supper in such a frivolous, insincere way. True worshipers, you see, have their heart in it. True worshipers, as Linsky put it, a grammarian, very fine expositor, throws their souls into it. It's a part of their heart. It's a part of their life. 
That is why many of you, verse 30, are weak and ill, and some have died. Um, I'd love to read more of that context, but I better not. I'll stop at verse 29. And I think that's a wonderful verse to consider, and I'd love to consider it, but I better not. Therefore, let us, just simply because of time, let us be careful. Let us be careful to put our heart and our soul into our worship. Now, here's some points that we need to be very careful about. When we're talking about the right attitude, let's consider some bad attitudes, wrong attitudes. One attitude that's all wrong is an arrogant attitude in worship. You see that in Luke chapter 18, and I know that you're very familiar with this individual, but in Luke chapter 18, he had a very arrogant attitude with regard to his worship, and God condemns that. We need not have that. This is the Pharisee and the publican. He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and threatened others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other tax collector. Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I'm thank, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm reading Luke chapter 18. And there's difference in attitude here in worship. The Pharisee goes to worship sort of with the thumbs in the lapels saying, look how great I am. And it's more about a eulogy about himself. Look how great I am. And he almost implicates God in this matter. I thank you, God, you didn't create me like those. So he kind of refers to God in this. You know, you had a part in making me as great as I am. And I'm filled with myself. An arrogant attitude is condemned here. And that kind of attitude we should not develop. That's the point. Hypocrisy. And I want to read, and I'm trying to juggle some of the facts that I want to talk about and the matters that I want to talk about up against the time, but we do have a lot of work to do. But this particular point in Mark chapter 7 really bears consideration. And they were very slick guys, these Pharisees and Sadducees, how that they could actually do an end run or thought they could around the Word of God and get out of doing it by devoting themselves to another part of God's will. And so Jesus said, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, verse 7. I read for you tonight Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 6 and also verse 7. And what is the point? Let's not be hypocritical in worship. Our attitude must be sincere. Our attitude must be reverent. Our attitude must be a focused attitude on praising God and glorifying Him. And then... Here's another point. I want to make it, even though I'm pressed for time, and that is this ostentatious attitude that we have sometimes in worship. Uh, Really, sometimes, I don't know if you're like this, and I'm not saying that you are at all, but sometimes people go at it just as a show. 
in Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He talks about almsgiving. He talks about prayer. He talks about fasting. And the wording here is very interesting. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others, uh, other people, in order to be seen by them. I looked up that word, to be seen by them, in Mark chapter 6. And it means to put, put on a public display. Beware. Don't practice your religion. Don't be of a worshipful attitude. Just so others can see what you look like. And just so others can see what you're doing. I use the word ostentatious. It, it's a show-off type of attitude. The wrong attitude. We've got to have the right attitude here. We've got to worship the right object. And we've got to have the right spirit, the right attitude in our worship to be true worshipers. And that's the point that he's making, and one needs to be added here. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. He says in verse 1, for then you will have no reward for your Father who is in heaven. You see, the only reward you're going to get is what they see. As the hypocrites in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, this is the last portion of verse 2. They have received their reward. Now, look those words up. And the words conveyed thereby, they have received. They've been paid in full. Whatever they get out of that, whatever pat on the back they get, whatever impression they can make toward other people of being very proud and pompous type people, that's all they're going to get out of it. So what's the point? You know, if we go about this matter just to be seen of others, just to be seen by others by our performance, which entertainment type worship focuses on, then we've got all we're going to get out of that. The choirs, the solos, the religious dramas in the church assembly, these particular matters are of no value when approaching God in worship. And then the third point, I have to be brief, and that is our action. And I think John 4 and 24, this passage I'm basing my discussion on tonight, about true worshipers. John 4, 24 is not only talking about the right object and the right attitude, but it's also talking about action in spirit and in truth. So let's talk a little bit about that. I did some special study in preparation for tonight on Philippians 3 and 3, and I won't be able to discuss all that with you, but Paul talks about that from the standpoint of we worship by the Spirit of God, 3 and 3. Some of your older translations say, in the Spirit of God, but it all comes out meaning the same thing. We are led by the Word of God on how to worship. It is the Word of God that leads us and directs us in this particular matter. First, let me talk about some of the acts of worship and how important they are. There is the Lord's Supper. Jesus instituted that Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, 26 through 28. For us to do something other than the fruit of the vine and the bread... Uh, is an attack on Bible authority. Some denominational people are substituting uh, fruit of the vine and using water instead. Some are using other elements on the Lord's Supper. This performance-type worship is an attack on Bible authority. It is done every first day of the week, Acts 20 and verse 7. That verse is a remarkable passage and really needs to be studied carefully. It is a reference to each Lord's day they came together, and each one participated in that particular act of worship. 
There is the singing of praise, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. Another remarkable passage telling us the act of worship, whereby we come together and we sing. Colossians 3.16 makes it clear that words are used with regard to our singing. The idea of singing is a form of teaching. It is not noise-making. One congregation in the San Antonio area had um, in their worship service fireworks. Fireworks do not teach. Humming, clapping, whistling, foot-stomping, instruments of music, mechanical instruments of music, erode away biblical authority. The idea is that we are teaching each other in an amazing and wonderful way. When this man gets up there and he leads us in our singing, we are studying together, learning together, admonishing one another together. And what do we sing? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Patriotic songs and praises of our nation and that kind of thing really do not have authority in the pages of the Bible. Each of us are doing this one to the other. The reflexive pronoun there is very insightful in which it says that we all sing together. Prayer, what a wonderful blessing for the child of God, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. And yet that prayer is to be in harmony with the word of God, 1 John 5 and 14. The prayers in the assembly are led by the males of the assembly, 1 Timothy 2 verse 8. Paul made clear this was not just a local matter, but it was a universal matter. The giving of our means is found for us in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Again, it was something that was done on a weekly basis. From this context, we learn that it is a matter of obligation to give. Now, here's a tricky point. Now, spend a brief second talking about it. Please forgive me for running through some of this material so quickly. But here's kind of a tricky point. I'm obligated to give, but I've got to enjoy it. I'm obligated to give, but I'm to learn to enjoy the opportunity to give of my means. Now, we need to study that carefully as the body of Christ. Let's get back to the giving that we read in the pages of the New Testament. I'm obligated to give, but I am to grow and mature spiritually to the point where I see the benefit of it, the value of it, and the blessing of it. I'm not to give grudgingly or disparagingly. And the Bible is very clear about that particular matter. My giving to the work and the cause of Christ is not tipping. When Carol and I go to a restaurant, that kind of thing, the waiter, waitress expects a tip, and she or he works real hard to bring everything and fill up the iced tea. She likes iced tea. I drink water, that kind of thing, and keep bringing it out and bringing it out, and they want a tip, and they, you know, it's our custom to tip, but giving to the body of Christ is not tipping. Giving to the body of Christ is obligatory. And 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 makes it very clear. It is a part of our worship, and we need more study on that, brethren. We need more study on that at Broadway, I know, with regard to giving, though they are a very giving, giving congregation of people. Teaching, of course, is another matter with regard to the principles of what acts should be conducted in the worship service the teaching of the Word of God. The males of the congregation are to teach in a public way. It is the Word of God that is to be taught, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That is what is profitable for doctrine, for proof, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Not only must men do the teaching, but faithful men 
must do the teaching. Second Timothy chapter two, verse two. One who is unfaithful should not be up there teaching God's word. Not only should faithful men be teaching, but faithful men who are able should do the teaching. That is, people who have developed skills and abilities and have the instructional ability to teach others the word of God. Not only should it be faithful men who are able, but they should teach plainly the word of God. It is not a lot of theological double talk that we need. We need the straight talk of the word of God, and then we need to apply it to our lives. And I tell the good folks at Broadway, and I keep reminding myself of this particular matter, that I want this word of God to go in this ear and make a left turn. Let me tell you how it works at my house. When I go somewhere, my wife goes with me. She tells me how to drive. And she does a very good job at it. There's no reason for me to ever get lost with GPS and my wife Carol sitting in the front seat. I can always find the right way to go. She has a tendency to tell me how to do this. Bless her heart. And she's generally right. And she'll say to me, you missed the left turn. Okay, let me turn this thing around, see if I can get back. You missed the left turn there. I don't want that to happen with me in the Bible. I don't want to miss the left turn. I want it to go into this ear. And when it's in my head here, I want to make the left turn and go right down into my heart. If it misses the left turn, it's going to go right out this other ear. This word goes in one ear and right out the other ear unless I make the left turn. And that's what we've got to do tonight. We've got to study this word in such a fashion that we put proper application to the word. Let's make the left turn and put it deep down into our hearts. Therefore, whether it be liberalism on the far left, legalism on the far right, entertainment and progressiveness, which many uh, want to involve themselves in, there is a strict disti distinction, a dichotomy between entertainment and strong worship. God has told us what strong worship is about. True worshipers worship the right God with the right heart and in the right way. And that's what we want to do. We don't want to miss the left turn here. We want this from in our heads to go right down into our hearts. Now, if I'm speaking to someone tonight who's never obeyed the gospel of Christ, I urge you to do it tonight. If you're visiting here and you really do not know or understand these particular matters, you can see how important worship is to us. And I hope that you'll come to understand how important it is for you to repent of your sins and confess your faith in Jesus Christ and to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. And if you've not been faithful to Christ, then repent of that tonight and become a faithful child of God right now. Now, maybe you don't understand enough. Let's get together and study it. And the only stipulation that we would put on our study would be whatever the Bible says is right. And we're going to go by it. If the Bible says do it, we're going to do it. If the Bible says leave it alone, we're going to leave it alone. And we're going to be pleasing to God. And we're going to let this Bible lead us all the way through life and into heaven.
Won't you come now? While together we stand and while we sing.